1 Corinthians chapter 5, you read aloud at home tonight as I read the scriptures here at the pulpit. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye, he's talking to the church, and ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your, that's the church, your glorying is not good. Know ye not, in other words, as I preached a few messages ago, don't you know, he said, you've heard this before, don't you know? Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. Notice verse 8. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture. It's difficult to read. Quite honestly, it's difficult to preach. It's church polity. It's rules of practice for a church when grievous sins, which are public sins, are in the house of God. And right there in verse 8, right there in verse 8, Paul made a remarkable statement. He said, keep the feast. And you'll see tonight, as I preach this, there's an objective in what God wants us to do. We want to keep the feast. Tonight I want to preach on the subject entitled, Essential Judgment. Essential Judgment. May God give us wisdom and help tonight. Father, bless your word. Sanctify thy people through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I pray for the converting of souls and of minds and hearts. Instill us with the fear of God and a love for you tonight. And we'll thank you for what you'll tell us this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to judge? To judge another person? Paul is on the subject of judgment here again. He's pretty strong about it here. He talked about the judging of the deed of this brother. He talks about the fact that 
He passed judgment already. In this day and age of tolerance, it's bad socially to judge. But the word judge is in the Bible. What do we mean by the word judge? Well, the word judge means to make an accusation, form an opinion, or make a determination about another person's character, their actions, a decision they made, or their person. In most usages of the word, the word judge means to make a subjective opinion about someone. Now Paul, as we've studied through 1 Corinthians, has talked about two judgments. I hope you're listening tonight and you're taking notes. The first judgment, I'm going to give it a name. The first judgment we see is what I call erroneous judgment. This is a biased, subjective judgment. And as we come out of chapter 4, you remember I spent two messages in chapter 4. Paul was the subject of biased, subjective judgment. His authority as an apostle was questioned. They had formed an opinion about him. They said he was a weak leader. They said he was weak physically. They said he's somebody that blows smoke. He's not really real. And they made erroneous judgment about him. They made a judgment of him without all the facts. Secondly, Paul talks about eternal judgment. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses I think 8 to 14, 8 to 15. He talked about the believer's judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. A judgment concerning rewards to every believer or the absence of rewards. Tonight we're looking at a third kind of judgment. It's so important. Paul took an entire chapter. And Paul, I'll tell you, I don't think he was comfortable dealing with it either. But in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he dealt with it. And what is it here? In 13 verses, Paul writes out for us the practices, the principle, and the practices, and the prudence involve what I call essential judgment. The word essential has become very popular because now we have our society determining what's an essential business and what's not essential. And our governor, as he's slowly trying to reopen things, is classifying different things as essential. It's unfortunate. Churches have been lumped in the non-essential category. I want you to pray with me about a petition that, uh, that's been circulated, that's trying to get over a million signatures. I signed it about two Sundays ago. Uh, that's going to be going to Vice President Pence and then going from him to President Trump to declaring that there are a million signatures declaring that churches are essential. And I hope you believe that with me tonight. If you believe that, you ought to send an amen right now. Churches are essential. God says they're essential. He's the founder of the local New Testament church. I'm not mad against their government. They don't know anything about church. In fact, if anything, we are practicing Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. We realize they are powers that are ordained of God. But would to God some of our leaders and politicians would engage a, a fundamental Baptist preacher that knows the Bible and helping guide them along the way and understand what God's mind is all about. 
The word he sent to me is necessary, important, crucial, imperative. Essential judgment tonight is dealing with the church, a local church, that faces the need of dealing with a, with a public, unrepentant sin of a church member. The essential judgment here is the need of a local church dealing with an unrepentant member of a church who has committed a public sin. We're going to define that tonight. We're going to look at it. Before I do, I want you to indulge me for just a quick moment because I want to take us backwards for a minute to understand the fundamentals of church membership. Because we need to revisit what church membership is all about. Church membership is attained when a saved individual is baptized into a local New Testament church. And when I mean baptized, I'm talking about baptismal immersion under the water. Not sprinkling. Not, not christening as a child. You have to be saved first. You need to be saved. And then you follow the Lord in baptism. It's when a saved individual is baptized in a local New Testament church, or that individual is, is saved and was baptized in a local New Testament church, a precious like faith is ours, and comes here and desires to transfer their membership here, and we find out we, through our discovery process that, they, that the church they came from, the doctrines match up and the practices match up, and we can receive them because they come from a church of like, precious faith. Please understand this, and I don't say this in an ugly way, but you know we receive, we receive transfer membership predominantly from independent Baptist people, from people who come from independent Baptist churches there. So I mean, it's just what it is, because we're of like, precious faith there. And once that person is baptized into our church or applies for transfer membership because they come from an independent Baptist church like ours, then I recommend to the church that we accept them as members and the church body ratifies that person in membership. They ratify my recommendation. Now why is membership important? Well, number one, when you get saved, hey, listen to me tonight, when you get saved, it's the will of God that you become a church member. God wants you on the inside. Why? Number one, it affords you and gives you, as you'll see tonight, the umbrella protection, the spiritual umbrella protection of the local church on your life. You ought to run and hastily become a church member. You ought to meet the requirements to become a church member. Why? Well, number one, you can participate in the Lord's Supper, which we practice in remembrance of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for us. It enables you to serve the Lord in capacities where only members can serve. There's no teacher, there's no staff member, there's no deacon that serves her. There's nobody in our nursery that serves her that is not a church member. You have to be a church member. It's essential that you're a church member to serve in trusted capacity. Listen, membership is a trusted position. Membership is a privilege. Membership is something God wants us to do. You say, well, pastor, membership's commitment. Yep, you hit it right on the head. It is commitment. It is commitment. Membership requires that we tithe. And I want to just pause here for a minute to say on behalf, I had a wonderful meeting with our deacons last night and just thankful for our men and their prayers and their support. Went over some reports. By the way, we did it all by virtual. It was a virtual meeting, just so you know that, okay? And we just were praising God from the beginning to end. 
for the members of our church who faithfully tithe and participate in faith promise missions and give to the building program for our debt reduction and for those who stepped out in the midst of COVID-19 and job uncertainties and have given to the, the HBC CARES COVID-19 offering. By the way, you don't need to give anymore. We're good. We're good. We're going to stop right now. We're, we're good right now. I don't want you giving any more money to that. If you want to give something, put it towards debt reduction right now. But we're good. We're praying over something. God's given us opportunities today. We're, we're going to be very good stewards of this. It will be spent. But we're going to spend it profitably and prudently. Well, I thank God for our members who participate. I thank God for the day we're going to reopen. We're just a lot of things I'm going to, we're working on right now for our plans for reopening. I've got a 30-something page plan right now that I'm working, I'm trying to finalize for presentation. And we'll be sharing with you over time as we get some things in, in, in place about what that's going to be like and what it's going to look like and what's going to happen. And I envision members being involved in ways like they've never been involved before. But membership brings us into the local church body. And all I want you to understand tonight, it's a privilege and it's a protection. But what about 1 Corinthians 5? 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with the removal of a member from membership. The removal of a member from membership. What is that all about? How is that done? Why is it done? Why does God put this in here? Well, let's see that tonight. Number one, if you have your notes out, number one, I want you to see the complaint. Look at verse one. Actually, go back to chapter four. Paul had to deal with their judgment against him. He had to deal with that several times in chapter 4, and you find him mentioned again here in chapter 5. He speaks about their conceitedness, their pride. Paul had been away. Paul was their spiritual father. Paul led them to Christ, but they were judging him. You know, it's that old, that old adage, that old cliche, out of sight, out of mind. And instead of respecting the man who had influence in their life, there was disrespect. And may I say to you tonight, the Bible, Paul addresses that later on in his ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Listen to me tonight. He said, rebuke not an elder. Rebuke not an elder. Because they were rebuking him. And he talked about the fact we're just spectacles as servants of God. And so... He said in chapter 4, verse 21, What will ye? Shall they come unto you with a rod or in love in the spirit of meekness? Now, Paul practiced what he preached and wrote. And they knew because the house of Chloe, they came with several scrolls of problems in the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I've said this before. This was a dysfunctional church. It was messed up, okay? I mean, it just had problems. And this is one of them. Paul knew that. And Paul was not, let me tell you tonight, Paul was brokenhearted for them. 
You read about some of that later on in this letter, and you read about some of that in 2 Corinthians. I mean, his, he says, my heart is enlarged and my mouth is opened. He was talking about he was heart, broken hearted towards them. And so he's telling them, I'm not coming to you with what I'm going to address. And they knew what it was going to be because they, they, knew, they, they already knew the outline. They knew, boom, the bomb's going to get dropped. They knew, boom, it's going to come down hard. He said, will I come to you with the rod that beats you on the head or with love and meekness? Galatians 6, 1, Paul said, brethren, if a man be overtaken a fault, ye which are spiritual. There's the key word. Spiritual. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest ye be overcome. Paul has a complaint in verse 1. Would you notice that? The complaint is about a sinning brother in the church. In verse 1, we see the individual in the complaint. It is reported commonly. That means it was public. Everyone in the church knew about it. People outside the church knew about it. That's how bad it was. It was about an individual a brother, a brother that was immoral, that there is fornication among you. The word fornication is an all-encompassing word that could talk about adultery. It talks about premarital, extramarital relationships that should not exist homosexual behavior, whatever all the other terms that they use now, pornography, I mean, bestiality, I mean, all that stuff there. We get our word pornography from the word fornication. He was immoral. And excuse me for saying this, and if you're, you're a little bit concerned about your children hearing this, you can just cover your children's ears right now, please. But it's in the Bible. This man's immorality was he was having an immoral relationship with his father's wife. That was his stepmother, his father's wife. It was commonly known. Leviticus 18, second time we're not going to read it. Leviticus 18 deals with some of these things there. The Bible uses this word in Leviticus 18 about these kind of things. Everything coming within that word, porneos. It calls it abomination. It's wicked. It's detestable. God calls it wicked. This brother was immoral. This brother was also impenitent. He knew what he was doing. He did not confess his sin. He did not make right. He persisted in this bad relationship. He was impenitent. He would not repent of his sin. He had some problems. What he was doing, the Bible says, was commonly known. It was commonly reported. It was well known. It was blatant. And it was prideful. It was public. We see the individual. But I want you to know something else. The complaint Paul had was not only to the individual. The complaint was also against the institution. 
Paul is also addressing the church. He said in verse 2, notice this, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Later on in verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Now Paul helped start started this church. He was their spiritual father. He's calling it out what it is. There is an individual sin and there is an institutional sin. Notice the sin of this church. This church was conceited. You know what he meant by conceited when he said you're puffed up? Here's what they were saying. Yeah, we know about it. What's the big deal? So what? Everybody in Corinth is doing that. But everybody in Corinth was not doing that. The Bible says, it describes as such, it was so perverted. He says, it is so not so much as even named among the Gentiles. They were conceited. They said, well, the rest of us haven't done it. What are you, what are you upset about, Paul? They were conceited. They were complacent. Look at verse 2. And he says, you have not rather mourned. They were indifferent about it. They weren't mourning. They were impenitent about it. This church was conceited. This church was, this church was, was complacent. Hey, this church was complicit. They were just culpably as guilty as this individual because they tolerated an open, immoral, public sin that was affecting the church and was a stumbling block to other believers in the church. So Paul told him in verse 3, For I verily is absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I are present. Please understand something. Let me say something about this matter. We call this church discipline. This was not a matter that the church of Ephesus was supposed to come in and get involved with, or the church of Jerusalem for that matter. Local churches deal with local church problems. Many, many years ago, there was a well-known pastor that got, that was, uh, uh, there were some things that were going around that people knew about. It was somewhat scandalous. It's never been proven that he did such things. And an evangelist who got a burn in his saddle decided to let everybody in the world know about it. And he wrote a, he wrote a very terrible article describing it. And uh, just basically, he cast judgment on the man that he was guilty, even though he didn't have facts to prove anything there. And uh, as much as it was very enlightening that people knew about it, the fact of the matter is, it was a local church matter. It was none of his business to get involved with it. You say, well, what did Paul do here? Well, I want to remind you something there in the first century. The apostles had an authority from God that enabled them and gave them the, the approval of God to get involved with churches of the, uh, when these kind of things happened. And Paul is exercised that. So he says in verse 3, For I verily is absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. You know what he's saying there? Paul said, listen, you guys haven't passed judgment on it because you're in this place. You want to judge me, but I'm going to tell you right now, you've got, there's sin in this church that has to be judged. There's essential judgment. He says, I have passed judgment on this already. There's sin, against the ch- there's sin, there's sin that this man has done against the church, and there's sin that the church has done in this matter here too. He said, the report I've been given is grievous. It was gross. It was grievous. It was unconfessed. We see the complaint. Number two, would you notice this? We see the command. Verses four to eight, Paul gives them instructions. And it wasn't if you feel like it. It was a command. If something of this nature happened 
in our church, and I pray it never does. I pray it never does. We have the procedures in place right here of what we must do. Because remember, this was an immoral brother who was also impenitent. He refused to change. Matthew 18's principles, you go to him directly. If he doesn't repent the first time, you take another brother with you as a witness. You go to him again. If he doesn't change, then you bring him before the church. And you present him as a heathen man. That's what the Bible's talking about here. You present him as a heathen man. So Paul defines for us what we, could, what we call church discipline in this matter. First of all, as you notice in verse 4, there must, there, there's the, the, the command involved the assembly. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together. Park on that right now. Church discipline requires an emergency business meeting. There's no two-week notice. Church discipline requires an emergency business meeting. He said, when you're gathered together, and you're going to find Paul frequently using that phrase, when you're gathered together. He's talking about the assembly of a local church. A lot of times, uh, I found that a lot of commentators, and a lot of just, because it's pres- a lot of it is Presbyterian and Protestant driven, a lot of people, they interpret 1 Corinthians, they have this universal church mindset that this is talking about all church, uh, you know, we have a universal church mindset. It is not. He's dealing with the local church issue here. And he told them, you need to assemble quickly. You need to assemble now. You need to have an emergency business. And by the way, just so you know this, I know we have Robert's Rules of Orders, and we used to have some, some semblance of organization, but you'll notice the Scriptures, it didn't even call for a quorum. It didn't call for a quorum. It didn't even matter if this sinning brother showed up or not to defend himself or speak for himself. An assembly, this, this command involved the assembly. They needed to come together. Secondly, this command involved an authority. Would you notice verse 4? Now, when we pass judgment on someone, we've got to be very careful <clears throat> where our righteous indignation, or in some cases if you're in the flesh, it's unrighteous indignation, I said, if you're in the flesh, it's unrighteous indignation. That you don't let your flesh get in the way and you do something because you want to do it. Because first of all, you ought to be grieved in your heart. And you ought to have meekness in your heart, realizing if this was me, if this was me, is this how I want people to treat me? Is this how I want people to deal with me? Because the scriptures are very clear. It's very black and white how to deal with it. And the authority they came was not in the authority of Paul. And the authority they had to deal this with was not in the authority of Peter or of Apollos. He said in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. The authority was in the name of the power of Jesus Christ. Well, that meant this church needed to pray. That meant that church needed to confess its sins. That meant that church needed to be in submission to Christ. Listen, church discipline of a sinning member must be done in the name and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an authority by which church discipline happens. And I think what, what I want to say to you tonight is a lot of times our intimidation of, this, of a situation like that or our fearfulness or afraid of losing members or whatever it may be, you know, because we're in a tolerance age and people have their different ideas or people want to defend that person even though it's wrong. It, you know, you know we we're fearful of all those things. We're afraid we're going to lose families and all this. Thing. You know what the Bible says here? It, it encourages us by realizing we're not coming in our power. We're coming in the name and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's his church. 
It's not the pastor's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not some staff member's church. It's not some disgruntled member's church. It's not a tribal leader's church. Listen, it's the church of the living God. And then we see in this command, we see in action. Verse 5, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said in verse 13, therefore put away from among you, among yourselves, that wicked person. Verse 5 is strong. The words, the word is one word, Greek word for the word put away. It's where we get our word divorce from. We even get our word, the word apostasy from that, a departure. It means literally, you've got to let them go. You've got to remove them from the membership. And I want you to understand what he's saying here. This individual needed to be removed from the church membership. There had to be, once, the, once, the, once, the, once it was made public, what was known, and everybody knew what was going on, so there was no need for 10 pages of dissertation what happened there. It is reported commonly among you what he was doing. They brought it up. Paul had passed judgment on it, said, I've already judged. This brother has to be removed. You can tell him I said that. They had to meet. It didn't require a quorum. It had to be swift and immediate. And Paul said here, this is what you're doing. The essential judgment is this person must be removed from the membership of the church. Number one, it was for the protection of the church life. Paul said in verse 6, Know ye not that a little leaven left the whole love. He says it's affecting the church. It's for the protection of the church. The church had Ichabod written all over it. The glories departed. It was, also for the, it was also because of the individual. Notice he says here, deliver such a one unto Satan. You know what he's saying there? Listen to me very carefully. The removal of the individual from church membership removed him from the spiritual protection of the local New Testament church and put him at risk from adverse increased attacks of Satan Against that individual. And the Bible describes it here in verse 5. Uh, in the, he says, to deliver such a one unto Satan. When a person has to be removed from church membership, they are delivered unto Satan. Now that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. He clarifies that in verse 5. They don't lose their salvation. But he says, for the destruction of the flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, the destruction of the flesh means the prolonged ruin and destructive personal harm. Prolonged ruin and destructive personal harm. When God removed the hedge around Job to prove Job's faithfulness, Satan made an all-out attack. Remember that? Remember that? Made an all-out attack on, on, on Job. I said this many times before. He lost his herds. He lost his holdings. He lost his heirs. He lost his houses. And he lost his health. An all-out assault. You talk about fiery darts from hell. Man, they were shooting everywhere. And to deliver such a one for the destruction of flesh. And you listen to me tonight. 
If you're dabbling in some sin right now, if you've crossed the line in your moral relationship, I urge you tonight, repent and get right with God. Because the Bible is very clear, our sin will find us out. And it's ugly, it's grievous, and it's hurtful. And so he says this person would be turned over to Satan for the destruction of flesh. And what does he mean? Well, let me give you some examples. And I use the term prolonged illnesses, ills, and troubles. So for this individual here, let's talk about this sinning brother. There's the risk of STDs, loss of reputation, loss of career, loss of trust, Stigma, I mean, think about it right now. It's common report, the stigma associated with what he did. I mean, can you imagine the lost people out in the world, the Gentiles there in court saying, can you imagine that church over there? There's a guy in that church doing this. I mean, we don't even do this out here. I mean, how, I, I thought you're supposed to be saved. I thought, I thought saved people don't live like that. Is that what the power of Jesus Christ does in your life? There's guilt. The person will fall into depression maybe even rejection, and even the possibility of lapsing into suicidal thinking. They may even go further down into the gutter than where they've already been at. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He's put out there as a heathen man. He's at risk for attacks of untold nature against his spiritual and physical life because of unrepentance. This command required an assembly was in the name of an authority. Severe action was to be taken by the church. But Paul did get the drill to stand into them. In verses 6 to 8, he gives them an analogy. Would you notice that? And he tells them two things in this analogy. And he's drawing upon an established Old Testament practice that the Jews were practicing in their day. And he starts off first by saying, your glorying is not good. Because you know what? When he, when he told them verses 4 and 5, he already knew there's pushback. He already knew there was pushback. You know, I thank God for Paul. He encourages my heart. He was bold. He took a stand. He was courageous even when People turned against him. And he used an analogy. He says, your attitude, your glory is not good. It is not good. Because some of them didn't think it was a problem. And we'll see that at the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and so he draws upon the feast of the Passover. And he starts off with a question. Because it, it goes without saying. Questions accuse. State, you know, questions, questions, questions uh, convict. Statements accuse. And he says, no, you're not. Don't you know that a little leaven left the whole lump? Leaven is yeast. You add leaven to a lump that you've put together so that it will rise and give you bread. You add leaven to <clears throat> freshly squeezed grape juice, and over time it will ferment it. 
And all of us know enough about the fermentation process. We know that because yeast is added to, to, to the lump, the dough, that it will rise. And over time, it becomes bread. But left out, over time, it becomes moldy. Over time, the fermentation, the fermentation of the grape juice makes it t- changes the taste. It alters the body and the taste and this constituency, its, its constitution. And so leaven has a corrupting effect. It is good that it makes it rise, but it alters what you have there and it has a corrupting effect. Leaven is a picture of sin. Leaven, when it's used in the Bible, is a picture of sin. Now, when the Jews had the Passover, they also celebrated what was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, when they gathered together in Jerusalem, it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Jews, in preparation for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they were commanded to go through their home and look for old leaven around their house. Because kneading and raising bread, making bread, all that, that was a common thing. And so they had to make sure that all leaven in their home had to be cleaned out. Old leaven had to be removed. There was to be no leaven in the house. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread basically meant they were to make this unleavened bread, just a flat bread, which was basically a cracker. Leaven is a picture of sin. Unleavened means no sin. Unleavened bread is a beautiful picture of the sinlessness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he had a sinless nature, okay? If there was leaven in that, if there was leaven in that bread, then that would say Jesus had sin. But no leaven in that bread represents Jesus in his sinless nature. So notice what Paul says here. He said in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. He said, listen, you're unleavened because Christ has saved you. So he draws them to the feast of the Passover. The celebration of the feast of the Passover was celebrating what Jesus Christ did on the day of Passover. They took a, a, a lamb that was without blemish, a lamb of the first year, a young little innocent lamb that was without blemish, that was a picture of the sinless life of our Lord Jesus Christ. They slit the throat and they killed it. And, and Moses said from that point on, God said, you need to celebrate this annually. You need to have the same time of the calendar, about the second week there of April. You need to celebrate the Passover. And celebrating was the reminder that Christ delivered you, but the celebration had to involve the removal of leaven out of your home. And the celebration had to remind you that you're celebrating Jesus Christ there. So he says, now, he says, take out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. He said, for even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Jesus came on our behalf. He was without sin. He died without, he died for our sins because he's the only one qualified to die for our sins because he was, he was without Without sin. And then he says here in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, what's Paul saying there? He's saying, look it, I'm going to give you an analogy you can understand with. Just as you cannot celebrate the Passover and be right with God if you have any leaven in the house, in the same way, you cannot celebrate Christ in a worship service. You cannot celebrate Christ in prayer meetings. You cannot celebrate Christ in soul winning meetings. You cannot celebrate Christ in a rehearsal. You cannot celebrate Jesus Christ, even in the Lord's table, if there's sin in your midst. You've got to get the old leaven out. But notice the application. In verse 8 he says, therefore, the wheels are spinning, it clicks in their minds. They get, oh we get it. Let us keep the feast, 
Not with the leaven. Now he turns the attention not just on the brother who was the leaven that leavened the whole lump. He turns the attention back to the church as well. He says, neither with the leaven of malice. Now who had the malice? The church and the individual. Malice means ill intent. Premeditated intent with the intent to harm, to harm or to injure. There was intentionality behind it. Neither with the leaven of malice, and then the wickedness was the wickedness of the brother, but he's also talking about the church because the church was complicit in this matter. He said, instead, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, church, you need to assemble. You don't talk about it. We have to understand something, please, brethren. As a Baptist church, there are things we discuss and there are things of no discussion. And doctrinal matters are things of no discussion. And practices of the church that are right are of no discussion. And a lot of times, just because of deference or because of kindness, we may ask for your opinion. But there are many times that the Bible is very clear, your opinion is not asked for. And your opinion is not asked for about church discipline. What the Bible tells us here is that this church was not operating in the, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There was no truth in that church. There was a lack of sincerity. They were insincere people. And so God was talking through the Apostle Paul. He said, let's keep the feast. It's just like coming to the Lord's table. God expects us to come in good faith. God expects us to come in sincerity and in truth. He said, let's keep the feast. He said, let's keep the spirit right. Let's keep the church clean. Let's keep the church holy. Let's keep the church right. Let's keep the church hot for Jesus Christ. But he said, you can't do it when there's 11, that there's some line of 11 there. We've got to do it with the 11 bread of sincerity and truth so that it's recognized we're coming with the right heart. We're coming with the right spirit. We're coming with the right motive. We're coming in truthfulness that God knows our heart. That we're honest and right before God and with one another about what we're doing. Let's keep the feast. We celebrate a holy and a just God. By the way, He is holy and He is just. When our practices are in sincerity and the truth before God. We see the complaint, we see the command very quickly tonight. Would you notice the cancellation? Cancellation means put a stop or halt to. For instance, if your credit card got scammed, or skinned, whatever they call it, scammed I guess, you'd cancel it, you put a halt to it. And Paul had to deal with a problem that was coincident with the sinning brother. And it had to do with the associations, friendships, and fellowship, the members at the church at Corinth, the Corinth Baptist Church, what the friendships, association, fellowship they were having with people that were that didn't fit God's description of what your friendship should be. Remember, they're in Corinth. That's the Vanity Fair of the world. 
That was the place where people lifted up. People got saved out of those lifestyles. You read that in chapter 6. They got saved out of bad lifestyles. The kind of friends they had were people like that. So Paul is dealing with a topic I spoke about a few weeks ago, but he goes a little bit deeper on it than I did here in verses 9 to 13. We classify it as biblical separation. So notice he's talking about a cancellation they need to make. And in verses 9 to 10, he begins by talking about the previous admonition. Now, this all ties in with what he dealt with, this cleaning brother and the sin of the church. There's a previous admonition. He said, I wrote unto you. That means a previous letter. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now, he taught them. And he said, listen, you're not to have fellowship with immoral people. You're not to have fellowship with immoral people. Can I tell you something tonight? Dovetail what I'm going to read to you tonight from these verses with Ephesians 5. You know, coupling with immoral people are hanging around the lunchroom, the coffee break, after hours, and letting them cast up all these dirty jokes and tell you all the immoral things they're doing in their lives. That's having fellowship with them. Or being a coach, or a teacher, or an influencer, where those people there bring all that stuff up and you just, you just, you think it's funny stuff, then you laugh at that kind of junk. The Bible says to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And so he says, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company, and I'm going to use the phrase immoral people. But Paul said, you know what? I didn't address, that's not fornicators. He says, yet not altogether the fornicators of this world. Now he's dealing with people on the outside right now, verses 9 and 10. He says, but he says, not altogether the fornicators of this world. And then he mentions some others, or the covetous. That's what I would call the very worldly person. They're greedy. The person, all they talk about is money. All they talk about is gaining and worldly behavior and worldly things. Worldly music. Worldly friends. Extortioners. People who take advantage of others and probably extortion that day was charging people usury, exorbitant interest, but taking advantage of others. Or the idolaters, and we could break it down today, idolaters is just, think about some people you hang out with. What they talk about tells you what they worship. What they talk about most tells you what they worship. In their case, there were people that were avid idol worshipers and affected kind of their thinking. He says, now I, I wrote to you not to have company with these people, but he says, I also understand that, that, that he said, and he says in verse 10, for then must he needs go out of the school. Now he says, I wrote to you about not having company with these people, but he said, I realize in, in telling you that, that probably in your mind you're thinking, well then, uh, maybe you're not really emphasizing separation, you're emphasizing isolation. And that's not what he's referring to here. You see, we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Listen, separation does not mean isolation. We need to be in the church. We need to have Christian friends, but not to the place where we have no contact with the outside world and we're not influencing people for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. So he starts with the present, the previous admonition, and then in verses 11 and 13, 
he gives them a present addendum. He amplifies on this. He's saying, look, it's a no-brainer. We've talked to you. I've talked to you. You've been taught. I've written to you. Be separated from the world. Love not the world, right? Neither the things that are in the world. But now he's talking about in the church, in verses 11 to 13. He's talking among Christians. Now, did you, believe it or not, we call this ecclesiastical separation on a personal level. As a pastor, I deal with it more on a, on a church level. Ecclesiastical separation. You don't need to worry about that term. But he says, now, the present addendum. He says, because of what I've had to deal with, I'm now also going to give you something else. Would you listen? But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer. And let me park on railing because I talked about the other ones. Railing literally means bitter complaint, vehement denunciation. Go look it up. A reviler, an abusive person. By the way, if you're corrected, you know, this term abuse has been just taken out of proportion. He's talking, you know, the word abuse is talking about, it talks about this in Proverbs. It's talking about a brawling woman in a white house. It's not like someone that just constantly, they're caustic in their speech. They're constantly critical, constantly condemning, constantly tearing apart. You know, that says about the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the crowd there at the cross, they railed on him. He was reviled, and yet he reviled not. They're critical, scornful, vilifying, they tear down. He's saying if a brother... Is a fornicator, covetous, idolater, a railer, a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one, you will not even eat. Paul said, you're not even supposed to have a meal with them. A lot of times, well-meaning members, I've, I've had to deal with some issues over the years. And dealing privately, going to the person individually. Being confronted with their sin. They were semi-repentant. They wouldn't give up their sin. And they leave the church. And someone who finally found out what was going on, very well-meaning. Well, can I take them to lunch? And, and so forth. And the Bible says here, with no such one, not even to eat with them. They need to know that in the eyes of God, it's grievous. You say, well, I'm passing judgment on it. God already passed judgment on it. That's why it's written here. God already passed judgment on it. You're not passing judgment on something God already has judged. Amen? I mean, that's what God, God's already judged it here. But he's being very strong with us. And I'm, I want to talk to teenagers and college students tonight, and some of you single adults. Hardest thing for you right now in your generation, your life, 
But I've got all these friends. I've got these friends in the world. My coworker, this, my coworker. Like, can I tell you something right now? And even some of you people in the work environment. The Bible is very clear about your fellowship. With such a one, not even to eat. You say, well, they're my friend. Well, if they're your friend, did you lead them to Christ? Are you bold enough to give them the gospel? You see, the more, the more you're around them, the more you become like them. I've been there. You've been there. And the more you become like them, the more you're comfortable with them, the more difficult it is for you to defend Jesus Christ and take a stand for the Lord. And I'm going to tell you tonight, the power of persuasion, someone like that has more influence over you than you'll have over them. That's just how it is. And that's why Paul knew that. He says you're to have no fellowship with them. Paul said in verse 12, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? So what, what do I, he says, why do I need to talk about the people outside? God's already cast judgment on them. He said that later in verse 13. He said, but do not ye judge them that are within? He said, look it, okay, I'm telling you to deal with the sinning brother. Now I'm telling you inside your church, you've got some behaviors that are very marked. And you're going to have to draw, you're going to have to put a dark circle around it to identify that you're going to have to take a stamp and withdraw from such association. From with such, withdraw yourselves. The Bible says in verse 13, for them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves. Notice how it describes this man. That wicked person. I think tonight some of us reading this passage and listening to this message, if you haven't turned me off already, have a hard time with that. <clears throat> you have a hard time with that. You want your children to be Mr. and Mrs. Popular. While they're at home, while they're at home, you have veto power on their friendships. Did you hear what I said? While they're at home, you have veto power on their friendships. If they leave the home and reject what you taught them and go another way, there's only so much you can do with that. That's where the prodigal son was. That's where the prodigal son was. But the dad had veto power in his life. If your child rejects your values and leaves you, you love them. You be patient with them. You restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. But please realize there will come a point in time they eventually have to realize the truth. This is the, remember he said here, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Is this not truth? Amen? Is this not truth? He says you need to practice the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I'm going to tell you, even within the body of Christ, I don't care what church it is. We have a good church. We have a great church, by the way. I'm not telling you to marginalize relationships. But I am telling you for your spiritual life. God's, God's circle that he wants us to have. Now we've read this here. You know what God's circle does? The circle, which is this big, has now become like this. 
Because you're realizing, wow, you know, God's telling me who my friends are. Well, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Psalms 1.1. Essential judgment is when a sinful, unrepentant church member must be removed from membership. They're removed from the privilege of membership and turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Delivering to Satan basically means we're not praying to Satan. It basically means we removed you from the membership. They're out there. They're under adverse attack. Essential judgment also means with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Withdrawing our fellowship. Moving away our fellowship from a believer who falls within the sins referred to. And by the way, let me just say this tonight. Because we're in this tolerance age, I'm just going to throw it out there and I'm going to get criticized. I realize there's a wide variation of different kinds of Christians. That's sad. There shouldn't be one kind of Christian. That's a holy Christian. There shouldn't be, very, there shouldn't be different kinds of Christians there. And some of you who have worldly Christian friends, and I mean that, in some other place, and this contemporary thing, and the only reason why you're here is because your friends are here. You're not, you don't agree with what's going on with that. You're having a hard time. You're struggling with it. And quite honestly, if you had your opportunity, if you could be a praise and worship leader, you'd be a praise and worship leader here, and you'd bring that junk in this church here. That's what you'd try to do. And so you have a hard time with that. Did you know what the Bible's saying here? If you just look at this very carefully, did you know, just watch this. Did you know those people in this praise and worship nonsense, all this contemporary music stuff, do you know they're worshiping themselves? They're worshiping their music. They're worshiping themselves. They, I was telling my wife the other day, we were walking through somewhere, and we heard this music, and I said, doesn't that just sound, I said, do you hear that music? And the way they, 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 the, the way they were swooning in the voice, and they just they were going on, and I said, isn't that interesting? That's exactly how they sing the contemporary music in the contemporary church. That deep, sensual voice makes my hair curl when I hear it. Essential judgment means we've got to draw the line. We've got to say no. A little leaven left the whole up. You say, Pastor, it's hard. That hurts. I know. Do you know this church was hurting? A little leaven left the whole lump. God hate people? No. What's the goal? Holiness. The whole goal in separation is holiness. It's not popular, but it's godly. It's, what, it's biblical. Lastly, what about the sinning brother? Can he be restored? Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely. But he has to be repented. He has to be repented. Can he be restored? Can he come back into membership? Absolutely. But after a period of restoration and submission to a plan of restoration. This takes time. The rebuilding of trust. Rebuilding of lives. There's a lot here. I gave you the principles. The complaint. The command. The cancellation. May God help us tonight to practice the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's keep the feast. Amen? Let's keep Jesus the main goal. Let's keep hot for Jesus. Let's keep celebrating Christ for who he is. He's all holy, all God.